Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Fire Service Data and Tech Talk. Hey guys, it's Eddie Buchanan. I'm a retired assistant chief from Hanover Fire and EMS and uh, very active with like ISFSI over the years. And now since I've retired, I work for a data company called uh, Deccan International. And I want to welcome you to the Fire Service Data and Tech Talk. So the purpose of this show on fireengineering.com is to talk about data and talk about how it fits in the operational role, right? Like so fire chiefs and, and analysts have been talking about data for a little while uh, over the past few years. But I want to have conversations about folks who are riding in jump seats or riding, riding in operations these days and what data should mean to you, uh, what input you might want to have related to data and how it might affect your operations in the future, right? So this is a... Um, we're kind of neutral here as far as any kind of applications, software, technology we'll talk about on the show. Uh, it's, it's not really about the technology or the, the actual specific vendors and things like that. Our intention is to have conversations about how this, this things will impact your operations as a firefighter or a fire officer. So that's kind of where we're going. And I think it's important that we, we have these conversations. Um, I learned a lot from... Uh, the fire dy dynamics research has been done over the last uh, 10 years since, you know, we started with NIST and we went to UL and the FSRI and all the th great things they continued to do. And one of the great lessons I took away from that was fires becoming lethal much quicker than we ever thought they, they would, right? You're going from a 20 minute flashover time period down to less than three minutes uh, for a lethal environment and a structure fire. That's incredible. It's a miracle we save anybody these days. And with, with that great reduction of, uh, of time for us to respond, we need every head start, every, every you know, lead, lead step we can get uh, for us to get to that incident just a little bit quicker. And the only way we really can do that anymore is, is to almost anticipate where these incidents would occur and, and kind of have a head start. And that's what this data, the, the research that goes on related to operations, that's what our data analysts are doing. I always feel like they might, data analysts might feel like they're removed a little bit from what operations does. But to me, they're, they're some of the most important people because if they can give me a three-step lead on, on a structure fire, I'll take it, you know? So that work is really, really important. So our purpose in this show is to talk about the, uh, our attitudes towards data. How can we collect data? What, what uh, tools and equipment and technology would be useful for us? And then how can we, as a fire service, not flap our own butt in the process, right? Because we have a tendency to do that too. So that's really the nature of this show. And uh, that's where we're going to go from here. We'll be on every month and we'll, we'll be covering topics that are uh, kind of real and operational for you. Everything from uh, operations to staffing is an important thing related to data. Anything that you might find useful in your fire department, that's where we're going. So our inaugural uh, show today, we've got two guests. I'm going to bring on my, my friends. And our first guest is uh, Dan Muncy, who is fire chief and fire warden in San Bernardino County Fire Department. Uh, chief, I really appreciate you being on the show. We don't get too many fire wardens out where I live, man. So that's a pretty cool title. Welcome to the show. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, your background? Sure, Eddie. I work for the county of San Bernardino. It's the largest county in the United States. Those of you that have visited us know that we have a pretty congested valley area. And then uh, right next to that, we have peaks that are about 11,500 feet. Then it drops down into more valley and desert areas. Uh, it's a 
it's 22,000 square miles. We cover 20,000 of that square miles. It is truly all hazard. I always uh, like to say that we can be performing avalanche rescues in our mountains at the same time. It's 110 degree heat along the Colorado River. Lake Havasu is in our jurisdiction. We can be fighting wildland fire. Um, really interesting to talk about technology and data. It's not something that I grew up on. Most of us didn't in the fire service, but it's something that I love now. And as a fire service leader, I've really come to embrace the importance of data as we communicate our needs to our stakeholders, whether it's the politicians or to the communities that we serve, and that we use this data to give the tools to our firefighters who are doing the job every single day. Awesome. And you're you're uh, the, a co-chair of the International Association of Fire Chiefs Technology Council, right? Yes, sir. I'm the chair of the iChiefs Tech Council. Okay. And I also sit as a fire scope board of directors and uh, past president of uh, the California Fire Chiefs Ops section. Yeah. What does the Tech Council do? Uh, th- th- give us like, you know, the 30-second the punch on what that Tech Council's purpose is. Sure. Um, say over the last 10 years, we've been a coalition of private and public entities that have been looking at emerging technologies in public safety space. We meet regularly with the different technology leaders and provide our inputs as fire chiefs uh, to ensure that we're getting the tools that we need for the job. We um, do some loose consulting with these agencies to make sure that they're all moving in the same direction. We do insist on some standards such as interoperability between the systems. And then we expose all this new technology to the various iChief members. Awesome. Awesome. It's an important group. Very important group. And my other mother friend here with us today is Mike Cox. Mike is a retired deputy chief from Henrico Fire and is now the director of Fire and EMS Solutions for Esri. So welcome, Mike. Tell us a little bit about, you know, but but your gig and where you come from. Well, thanks, Eddie. And yeah, and just a pleasure to join you and Chief Muncie uh, to talk about this this very important subject. Um, I was much like Chief Muncie alluded to. I'm, I was not very tech focused for most of my career, you know, 27 years probably uh, 22 or 23 were, were strictly operational. Um, but I was exposed to technology in a couple of ways. Um, we have back home there a NASCAR facility, a Richmond International Raceway, uh, and was really involved in the leveraging of technology to help run that event a little bit better. We were running it off literally a handheld radio and a yellow pad of paper for a number of years. And you're talking about 120,000 people, five days, 10 operational periods. Um, so we were able to leverage a lot of technology, particularly geospatial, to do things like track firefighters and track or to, to geospatially point where the incidents were within the special operations or special event operational area. Um, so it really, you know, showed me the value of it and how we could not only, you know, better serve our customers, but provide a safer environment for the firefighters as they were operating. It was just really incredible, um, the evolution of it in just, just a few months. Um, the other side of that or the other part of my exposure to it was we had an, uh, a fire uh, representative in our emergency operations center. And I uh, was really exposed to some of that with things like hurricanes, tornadoes, and just, you know, the value of providing that data as quickly as possible to help drive decisions, right? Getting the right data to the right person at the right time makes a, a world of difference in, in both serving our customers and providing a safer environment for, for our employees. And uh, yeah, just excited to talk about it and appreciate you inviting me to the inaugural podcast. Appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah. I appreciate you being here. Yeah. So what, what would you, what would you guys think, um, it, it, when I envision this pod, a fire engineering podcast or show, I typically envision somebody's probably on like a company office is on a treadmill somewhere doing his PT at the firehouse. And he's probably got this thing on in his headphones, you know? So what, why do you think a company officer uh, at that level, why is data important to them? Like how is it going to impact their ability to, to, you know, make a difference in their job on a daily basis. I, I want to try to connect. I feel like most of the conversations that we're all three a part of are typically at fire chief level. You know, they're they're up 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 high in the organization. And I want to want to speak to the folks that are running trucks every day that are out, you know, running calls. Why does it matter to them? What do y'all think? So data is just meaningless. It's just uh, pieces of information. And uh, we're all familiar with the Internet of Things. We're all familiar with what our, our devices, how they're spying on us, how our cars are spying on us. All, the, all this data is collected, but it needs to be interpreted in information. So as a company officer, what I care about is uh, where am I in my operating theater in relationship to the rest of my team, adjoining forces, 
Where am I in relationship to the building and structures around us, the wildland environment? Where am I in relationship to the fire and other hazards? And then what do I need to do? Um, What do I need to see? What do I need to know? And all that data is now being collected and interpreted information. So the number one thing we need to talk about is that data is meaningless. It's information. So how is a company officer using information? We recently had a mid- um, a mid-rise building catch on fire. I think it was six floors and, and somewhere on the fourth or fifth floor were um, heavily involved in fire. And our, our officers are deploying tablets into the various positions on the mid-rise because it's not a fire that most organizations see a lot of, but it's information jog so that they know what their particular um, job is. But they're also receiving information from the incident. For instance, if I'm staging, who's on deck? Uh, being able to communicate with the rapid intervention teams, the rapid intervention crews, be able to see the the updated CAD notes or where the deployment of resources are. So this information is now coming back to our firefighters. In the next couple of years, we're really starting to see the emergence of heads-up displays, um, which are helmet-mounted, that's able to display more, display more data and information to us. So as a company officer, as a firefighter, one of the things that we've all been in, we've all been in visually denied buildings. So those buildings that are so filled with smoke, we can't even see the fire. We've learned to rely on ticks. But now with the heads up displays, you're able to have your thermal imaging. But at the same time, we're able to do things such as edge detection. Edge detection is uh, able to tell us where the doorways are, where the windows are, when the stairwells are, where a firefighter's next to us, even when we can't see that person. So that those are all data points that are being um, that are being interpreted in in your heads up display to be able to give you the information. Um, these heads up displays are also able to tell you how to leave the building. Where did you come into the building? Where's your nearest exit to be able to give you the floor plans of the building? That's all data. When we first started, we used to flip through the map books and we would uh, we maybe we had a good pre plan of a building, but now with um, the technology that we're able to deploy in the near future, we're able to bring that right down to the firefighter, right down to the captains uh, as they're fighting fire. But Eddie, I think what you're asking though is more granular as far as data. You know, most company officers um, aren't thinking day to day about response times or turnout times other than they want to get to a critical call as fast as they can with the right resources to be able to mitigate that emergency. But that's information that, that really the chief needs to know and um, the stakeholders need to know, your, your elected officials. And the chief needs this information so he can communicate back to your stakeholders. How well are we doing? What are the standards that we set for ourselves or maybe some neighboring jurisdictions? How are we doing in comparison to make sure that they understand um, when we need to give more additional tools to, to the firefighters, when we may need to add engine companies or truck companies now? Those firefighters around a kitchen table or, or maybe they're in the gym listening to this podcast, they're going to go, we'll just ask the firefighter. We'll tell you when we need to add an engine. And they are 100% right. I can ask my firefighters and they'll tell me exactly where I need to add engines and they are completely correct. But communicating that information back to the policymakers is what the chief needs from the department. Hey Ben, when you when you said heads up display, my first thought was the original thermal imaging thing. Remember that it was a carnage or somebody made it, and it was this massive headpiece thing, you know. So the technology is really really improved. That's just how old I am. Yeah, they're they're about maybe an inch, an inch and a half display screens that flip down in front of your uh, SCBA mask. Um, you That's know, awesome. in Europe when they had the more sophisticated helmets, some of those are even displayed into the lenses. But that yeah. technology is there and it's able to give you the data so that you truly understand geospatially where you are in your operating theater and those adjoining forces and uh, where your exits are, where the fire is. They're, they're really able to communicate that information to the firefighter and then back to the command post, too. That's amazing. Amazing stuff. Mike, um, you, you, with Esri, you guys work with a bro- not just the fire service. You work with a broad stroke of all geospatial analytics. Correct. Have you, have you noticed... Um, what, what do you, differences do you see culturally? Like we're often compared to law enforcement with uh, how we approach record keeping. You know, the, the fire service, our, our, our attitude, I guess, towards report writing and capturing even the simplest of, of data points uh, is rugged to, to try to be nice about it. And what are you seeing as far as attitudes other disciplines might take towards data collection versus the fire service? 
Yeah, we certainly feel like I don't have data to back it up necessarily, but that law enforcement's been a little bit ahead of us in data collection. Um, you know, particularly for long-term analysis, establishing trends and either call types or or whatever their initiatives are. Uh, but I think we're catching up. I think you're seeing that, particularly in the in the context of, of CRR and community risk reduction and appropriate risk analysis, which certainly translates into any kind of response, all hazards response, but but specifically structural response. Uh, so I think we're getting there. I think you see, you know, the institutionalization of data analysis through things like the development of an F- NFPA 1022, which is a fire data analysis professional qualification, uh, and certainly the the recent um, award of the of the program to to UL and uh, FSRI of the update of the INFERS or what's now we called NERIS National Emergency mm-hmm. Reporting Information System. Uh, so I, I, we're getting there, but yes, we, we have, I think, been behind many industries in our ability to collect and use data. And I'll, I'll translate that back to the company officer, the, the, the guy or girl in the treadmill you were just mentioning. Uh, you know, we make from the time the tones drop till we mark on scene, that first due company officer is making 30 or 40 decisions, right? And uh, many of those decisions are made based on limited data. So we should, as, as an industry, make every effort to provide as much useful information to that company officer and, and any of the decision makers on the fire ground that we can. I mean, we have data available for every single structure in a, in a, in a locality based on or at a county or, or city level. I can tell you in most localities, every structure that has a basement, every structure that's sprinkled, what is the roof construction in every single structure in that locality? And are we leveraging that at a company officer level or at a company level for day-to-day response? I mean, many are not. And literally the data is there for you to reach out and grab and start making those critical decisions in the first few moments of, a, of an incident. So we've got a lot of, I think, you know, a lot of room to improve, but I think we're on the right track. There's a lot of agencies out there that are lacking the platforms that they require in order to receive the data and use it on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, in Southern California, California as a whole, it's pretty common to see most departments using a common operating picture of which there's a lot, uh, you know, Tablet Command and Intera, Radio Bowl, there's a bunch of them out there, Ezra products that you could use. But there's a huge disconnect with the rest of the United States. As I travel around and we speak on data and technology, there are some blank faces in the audience and they're thinking, we don't have the, the money to adopt this. We're not going to have this information to give to our firefighters. So I would like to highlight one thing that they're doing in California, which which makes a lot of sense through Cal OES, is they're working on a statewide common operating picture uh, called Next Generation Scout. And that's just simply a web address that you can access with any device. And it's able to aggregate, I don't even know how many pieces of information through the use of layers and then provide that to anybody that has a log on to it. So theoretically, you can have a fire engine from Arkansas coming out to California to help us on our wildland fires, provide them with that link, and they'll be able to log on and see the perimeter of the wildland fires, see where the structures are, what are the populations that are that are threatened? What are the evacuation zones? What is the weather that's coming in? Where are the adjoining forces? All of that information is now being able to display. So data and getting it into the hands of the fire service, into the hands of the firefighter is something that we need to do on a nationwide basis. I think uh, our fire administrator, Lori Morell, is doing a wonderful job at starting to look at that. Uh, she, she clearly recognizes the importance of data and be able to display that data for the American Fire Service. So I'm, I'm excited for the future, but we've got a ways to go there. Yeah. I mean, if you're particularly from a company officer level, it, it sounds like the, there are sources of information that are present that you may not even be aware that you have, particularly through some of the GIS information like Esri and some of those things. So if, if, if I was uh, looking at my next promotional process or assessment center and a project to work on, you know, you might, it might be a good idea to go, let me go see what I can find out from my own department, right? Maybe go ask some questions, knock on some doors, go, go see the, the planning department or the GIS, wherever the GIS person lives in your lo- in local government and start building those relationships. That would be pretty cool. Take some coffee I mean, and donuts, sit down for yeah. 10 minutes, have a discussion. <laughs> no, no I'm going to say go take a class, uh, yeah. sign up for an Esri class, either online or in person. Probably one of the best things I did is four or five years ago, went and sat down and just took a variety of classes so that I had an understanding what was available, but I also was able to get an ArcGIS login. So Esri um, is pretty agnostic for most organizations across the United States to own Esri. 
this is kind of a level playing field. And a lot of fire departments do not know that they have access. But if you're related to any kind of government agent, uh, see like a city or a county, um, even large fire districts, you're going to use Esri for something. And once you get that ArcGIS login and your agency typically will have some spares, you'd be amazed by the amount of products that are probably existing in your organization you knew nothing about. Um, and you would be amazed at how quickly you yourself can start creating things like um, like applications for, for your phone to collect information or to communicate to your customers or to start communicating with each other um, to, to start doing surveys. I mean, there's just so many little things that you can do and you already own this piece of technology. People just don't know that they own it. Yeah. You guys had mentioned uh, response times. You know, a lot of the focus, I, I know in my day job, we do a lot of, you know, predictive type analytics and it's all based off of response times, right? It's, it's from basically from the 911 call until the units arrive on scene. And, and we're pretty good at, at making that work and being able to get some information from that and make some decisions. But it, it baffles me that we stop there. <laughs> I have the, you know, I'm always fussing. One of my little soapboxes I get on is data beyond the air brake. Like everything, when we hit the air brake, psh, that stops all the, we stop measuring everything now. And we're just getting started. We're just starting to do stuff. The operational period's just beginning. So, um, are y'all seeing anything, uh, whether it be technology or I'll tell you a little story, right? So they, I was on the, uh, training, the te technical committee for fire services training for a lot of years. Right. And we had the, uh, NFPA standard 1410, which are a bunch of different company drills, company level drills that, you know, probably, I don't know, 20 or 30, maybe more than that. There's a lot of them that are in that standard and they actually have time recommendations, right? So when you go look at the, at the, at that, any particular drill, you're going to see the recommended time for completion for this drill is three minutes or, or six minutes or whatever the complexity of the drill might be. So that those time uh, configurations were, were there before I arrived on the committee. So I asked, uh, you know, how did, how did we, what research did we do? How did we come to this, this timestamp, this three minutes to complete this drill? And it's, uh, there wasn't any, you know, it was, uh, there was just some kind of trial and error, you know, like it was basically, you know, we feel like firefighters who are in pretty good shape should be able to do it about this fast. Right. And that's, that's what's in that document today still. Um, so I think part of the reason they had to do it that way was because there's no information beyond the air brake to pull from, right. We don't know how long it should take to, for your engine company to be able to generate a, a fire attack stream. Don't know. Nobody's ever really sat down and, and collected any sort of uh, timestamps, benchmarks, data, whatever you want to call it, to be able to understand what the what the what the averages are, what the norms are, and then what's really good performance and what's substandard performance. We don't know. So, what do you see um, as things on the horizon? If I was interested in seeing what my company could do, like where where do, how do we even begin that? Where how does the fire service go from where we are today with response times to getting to something? Uh, where we know a little bit more about our operations. Well, I'll jump in there, Ed. And I think, you know, to establish trends, we have to have data and we have to collect the right data. And we're simply not doing that currently. And I'll, I'll, I'll refer back to, to um, Chief Brush and his, his rescue survey and the kind of data he's collecting there. I mean, we don't know, you know, where are most of our savable um, occupants found, right? Where, where are the saves, you know, and, and were they in a, a bedroom, a, a, a common area behind a door in a closet? You know, we have anecdotal stories. We, we discuss about that. And what were the fire conditions when we made entry? You know, we talk about, you know, livable space and, and potential for survivability. Um, but do we have the data to really talk about that? And that's where we need to expand our data collection. That's hopefully where we're going at a national level. So that much like the standards you're discussing, we'd have data to base those standards on. So I think that I think again we're heading in the right direction. I'll say that again because we've got we've got you know personnel like Chief Branch that are that are pushing those initiatives to get the right data, um, but we're still lacking currently. Chief Cox is is correct, and from a fire uh, from a company officer's perspective, um, health and safety is always going to be number one. I think for all of us in the fire service, and so. 
Uh, there's NFP at 15A2, and a lot of us are doing comprehensive medical programs. There, there's a snapshot time, though. Um, and maybe even for two weeks before that medical exam, people are preparing themselves for this medical exam. But there are other data points that are coming that are going to help us do a, compre a truly comprehensive medical exam throughout the career of a firefighter in efforts to reduce cancer, stress, fatigue, uh, or health and wellness. So some of those examples that I think you're going to start seeing is biometrics. And a lot of agencies are starting to use that where they're watching the firefighters' respiratory rate, their heart rate, the same time they're monitoring their air usage in the name of safety when they're deployed on an incident. I think there's some agencies that are out there that are starting to do sleep studies and watching a sleep desynchronization or the sleep banks by using those biometrics and smart devices. Um, one thing about data is that humans are really bad at collecting the data if you have to push a button. Uh, a lot of the products that we're now seeing on the marketplace are providing those data points uh, with, independently, autonomously of the humans. For instance, turnout jackets that will tell you how many times they've been doffed. They'll tell you what kind of heat they've been exposed to. Chemical sensors that are telling you what kind of chemicals as a firefighter uh, been exposed to. So you're starting to see a lot more of the automation of the data points that I think are going to be really important for the health and safety of our firefighters to make sure that they're having a healthy career as we move forward. Eddie, to your point, is that we concentrate way too much on response times. And it's funny, you mentioned um, that, you know, it's it's the critical piece. We, we go from the time of dispatch to the time of arrival, but we, we forget about that two minutes that some callers on the phone do an EMD to determine whether it's a true emergency or not. I, I always think back when I was a brand new firefighter, I could pick up the phone and I can listen to our dispatch center and they would ask two questions, nature, emergency, address, and we would be out the door in 15 seconds. Now we spend all this time determining what are the predeterminate codes, how severe is this emergency, and then we're dispatching often the same resources that we've always dispatched, engine and an ambulance code three, regardless of that two minutes. But let's talk about that response time. It doesn't matter when you arrive on scene. It matters when you start mitigating the incident. The common scenario you'll hear is what about a high-rise building? You're setting your air brake at the base of a high-rise building, but then it's taking you seven minutes to get up 36 floors. Shouldn't we be measuring to the time that you arrive at the patient's bed size or till the time you put water on a fire? And the answer is yes, because if we're not doing that, we're not telling our complete story. And again, back to my perspective as a fire chief, I need this information to tell our story to our elected officials so that they understand this is how well we're doing at mitigating these emergencies. If it's taken us seven minutes before we can actually deploy our hose lines, put water on the fire um, for the next in rapid intervention crew to arrive so that we can make entry, well, then we need to take that account. We need to, to provide that data as information and let's be honest with um, our stakeholders. So I think there, there's all these kinds of these little things that are working with the health and safety. There's, um, to your point, making sure that we tell our story accurately so that we can get the resources that we need for our firefighters in order to keep them safe. And Chief, so, you, know, the, the, you mentioned the IoT kind of connectivity. In other words, humans are not always great at collecting data, particularly during an incident because they have other things to focus on. I'm not I'm not saying that's a that's necessarily um, a bad attribute, but um, you know, with IoT connectivity now, the data is there to to take care of a lot of that data collection without any kind of you know human in the loop, right? That fire truck knows when it got put in pump. There's a time date stamp on when it, it knows what pressure it was pumping. That air pack knows what temperature it was exposed to through telemetry. You can get that data, right? I know what the air consumption was for every firefighter that was on the fire ground. But are we leveraging that? Are we harvesting that data? to exactly what you're saying, tell the story that we need to tell, you know, both internally for operational policy and practice development, um, certainly with, you know, up our chain of command to elected officials, particularly around budget time, and then to the public. You know, there's a lot of ways we can leverage data that's already there. Um, and I think you'll see that, you know, trending uh, as, as data we collect without any need for the firefighter to make any effort to get that data. Yeah, the fact is, is that the firefighters already collect too much data, a lot of patient uh, patient care reports and you know, that's not really their job. Their job is to mitigate emergencies and they realize it. And that's, that's part of why we're bad at collecting data. Um, all these data points are now existed. The internet of things has been around for a long time, but all this information is very siloed. 
and it's not aggregated anywhere where it's meaningful. And so that's a great example of what the technology council does, the IFC tech council, is that we work with these different silos and we try to bring them together so that all these different data points can tell our stories better. What do you guys think about, because there's, there's a, in the meantime, right, or a, a, a building curve that we have to work through over the next couple of years, um, is there value for fire departments to even look at radio benchmarks as a way to get a CAD stamp on something that you could possibly measure? Is that, is it too unreliable? Like I use the ad patient as an example where um, I've already seen fire departments doing that for various reasons, you know, but there's, they're given a radio benchmark. We're at the patient and that's a log in the CAD. Depending on how the CAD is set up, it could be something we could, we could grab as a data point. Is that worth uh, wrestling with in the meantime, while this technology gets gets rolled out into the hands of firefighters, or is it just too unreliable and a mess to try to go through that effort? Measure what's important. So if it's important right. to the organization, measure it. And it, the clearest example to me is um, in Southern California is the unseen time of ambulances. Sometimes it seems like what's being reported and what's actual, there's a difference. So seeing departments ask their company officers to come on the air and report that there's an ambulance on scene so that they can verify the different data. Um, that is one example where some departments feel like this is important information. Let's make sure that we're accurately capturing this so that we can report it. Eddie, you brought up yourself that there's, uh, there's drills that you used to do and you had time standards. I think in a lot of areas, um, you can run through three or four drills and you can come up with an average time to perform these tasks, which can give you the information. But in the end, if you're asking your company officers to report information that they don't feel is invaluable, that they don't understand why you're asking for, I think that you're going to have flawed data. And then you can be interpreting this data into information that in itself isn't accurate and reliable. And I think that puts the fire service in a bad spot. So that would be an important point to make for for fire chiefs is that in in that policy development or, or creating that procedure or practice, it would be really, really critical to incorporate some frontline personnel and in, in what is the information that is needed, right? Like what matters and what doesn't matter uh, from an operational perspective, from the nozzle. Tell me what, what's important to the to the fire attack team as, as far as capturing things. I think that would be a I can see that misstep coming, you know, where I, I use the term flop on the backside. And we, we do that from time to time in the fire service. So I, hopefully we can we can start to collect some of this data without without the uh, sector C issues. So you're 100 percent right. And I think I have a story from my organization that probably across the country we'll see. But when we started uh, measuring turnout time, uh, it was when you went around on the radio or using SIMS on the radio. Uh, what we saw, it, because our ops chief said this is important, it was before I was a fire chief, this is important. If you start exceeding your turnout time, you're going to have to write written justifications. So what did our officers do? They carried around portable radios, and as soon as they got a call, they went around. So they avoided the radar of, uh, look at our turnout times, we're, we're more than a minute. So what are you collecting? Right. Um, and that's a case where me as a company officer, I didn't understand the importance of response data in order to understand that the fire chief wanted to use his response data to go to the policymakers and say, hey, we're doing the best we can, but this is what it looks like. And turnout time may be disparate because of station design or for a variety of other reasons. But if firefighters are giving their leadership bad data to make decisions, be prepared for bad decisions. Good point. Good point. You had mentioned, uh, Chief, biometrics. And uh, that's an important subject for me from a, from the training aspects, right? There's been several um, training line of duty deaths where uh, firefighters were, they, they ended up having a medical emergency. They ended up passing away from that emergency. And there was a lot of scrutiny on the instructors that were involved in those incidents, right? And this I, this is coming from the Instructor Society perspective. We've had conversations with that with that group about it's really hard to identify when a 
firefighter is in a is medical distress because how are you supposed to see anything, right? They're, if they're buttoned up in turnout gear and they're on air with SCBA and they're probably face down and probably inside of a prop somewhere, we really don't have any way to know what, what their status is. And it was frustrating for me because I, I have all, I have a gizmo on my wrist that I tell me what my heart rate was when I was asleep last night. How come I can't know what condition that firefighter's in while he's doing a drill? So, um, that's one of the things I think it's important. Uh, you know, we think biometrics and we kind of go, well, that's, that's kind of cool NASA stuff, but I think it really has a tremendous application for the fire service. And, and are you seeing any, uh, any technology developing that that's going to help us there? You think that that's in the near future? Yeah, absolutely. Quite a bit. Let's go ahead and call the elephant out though, is that there's some firefighters, maybe a lot of firefighters that don't want to be tracked medically. Right. Um, there can be pushback from associations or even unions. And I think it's really important for a fire service leader to sit down with your team and really work together um, to talk about how are we going to protect medical information, which is private to the individual. As a fire chief, we are going to move in that. We are working to move in that direction. What I care about, though, is the aggregate health of the organization. Um, I do care on emergency incidents. But the day-to-day, that's between that individual and their doctor. That's the way I view it, and I think that's been understandable to our our unions as we talk about it. Um, There are certainly a lot of biometrics that are out there, and you started seeing them seven or eight years ago with chest monitors, chest straps, and now you're seeing them on watches, smart devices. Um, You're starting to see it in some of the wearables that are being proposed in the fire service because I think everybody in the industry recognizes how important it is to understand the stresses on a firefighter's body, whether it's in training or in actual emergencies. We want to pre-identify before firefighters are going to need help, and then we want to make sure that we get them their help as quick as possible. Biometrics, like any of these data points, need to get out of the silo. They need to be combined with um, other technology. For instance, the one that jumps to my mind immediately is XYZ tracking. So we're good at X and Y horizontal tracking along the fire ground. But as you start moving up stairwells, there's still some emerging technology on that Z axis. If somebody's in trouble, we need to know exactly where they're at. And then as Chief Cox was explaining earlier, we need to have that digital twin of the building or or the operating environment that they're in. So we know exactly where to send our rapid intervention crews or teams in to save that individual. Um, So wide variety of different biometric devices that are out. Some of them are being built into a lot of the equipment we already carry today. And a lot of them are more proprietary. They're using smart devices and watches. But the important thing that we need to consider is the privacy issue as leaders. And what is it that we're actually trying to do, which is uh, make sure that our firefighters are healthy and they're going home to their families, yet that medical information is private to them and their doctors. Are you saying anything, Mike? You got any uh, thoughts on the biometrics as far as related to operations and training? Yeah, we're seeing, you know, some great integrations, um, particularly from at least on the, on the, on the safety side, right? Uh, with uh, AirPack and uh, other technologies that provide a telemetry. And, and much like you know, the chief was just referencing, even your AirPack is providing XYZ data, typically, if you have a newer model. So in other words, that AirPack knows where it is, not just, you know, on a flat map, but I can tell you, you know, how many meters above the ground you are. And we're not leveraging that data. And it's, you know, think about having that view in a command post, that I've got a company on the eighth floor, you know, they're at 30% of their, of their um, air pack capacity and using this much, you know, consuming this much air. But I can tell you exactly within a few meters, you know, not just where they are laterally, but vertically. Um, and that to me is the holy grail currently of, of, of firefighting in general, particularly structural. You know, we recently had, you know, the Dingle Act, a federal law requiring to, to attract personnel in the wildland setting. Um, we do not have that on the structural side yet. But we do have great efforts being made by, by many organizations, including DHS S&T, which uh, recently funded a study on tracking firefighters, including that Z-axis component. And I believe they're running, I know they're running some evaluations in Arlington County, Virginia. And I believe there's one other locality out your way, Chief Muncie. I'm not sure. I can't remember the locality. But specifically in high-rise, you know, you know heavy construction or, or um, high-rise construction, and typically where you'd have limited connectivity. 
to be able to still track firefighters with some accuracy, including that Z axis, which is t- that's just incredible. And it's where we should be currently, but hopefully we'll get there without a doubt. Yeah, Chief, Chief Cox is correct. In, in San Bernardino, my own organization, we've worked with a private tech company to study X, Y, and Z, um, especially in that comms and that environment where you do not have the connectivity. And then we've also extended that into the wildland. And while the Dingle Act is there, there's not any large agencies that are complying with that yet. There's some smaller agencies that are starting to, um, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done with firefighter tracking across the fire ground. Chief Cox, you mentioned a digital twin. Explain what you mean, just in case, you know, some of the listeners aren't familiar with that particular term. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of great, um, great use of, of digital twin technology, particularly in the kind of urban planning and economic development and or not particularly public safety kind of efforts. But we're glad to steal those capabilities from those industries. Uh, but to be able to have a digital twin and run things like flood modeling, wildland fire models, and understand how they not only impact the topography, but how they impact our infrastructure, how they impact our, our housing stock. Um, and to be able to run scenarios, provide training, and really provide insights to, to our personnel, to our agencies on how these significant events could impact our community. So we've seen significant advances, particularly in Europe. Um, I think if you go, uh, as an example, Stefan from HH Berlin, they have a digital twin of every major city in Germany, and they're running public safety scenarios on a regular basis to be able to understand the impacts to those cities, again, based on any hazard you could probably consider, whether it's, you know, an IED for a terrorism event or, or natural hazards like flooding or, or tornadoes and the like. So that, to me, um, is, is another great effort to, to increase our preparedness and knowledge of our, our first responders or particularly at a, you know, at a company officer level of what they may be facing before it occurs. Left of bang kind of development, right? And, I th- you know, the, the like things like routable street networks or like the elementary version of that. Right. Just to, yes. I think I don't know that people understand that that's possible to do today, that we could we could take a street network or anything that's routable. It could be a building and, and we could, uh, you know, you can run analytics in such a way you can predict what the outcome will be. So we can simulate events or response or, or whatever it is uh, in a, you know, in a planning perspective rather than. Most of the where I saw most of this happening, we think of like Madrakowski's uh, fire modeling that he did on all the various, you know, fatal fires we've seen. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could get out in front of something like that and and do that same predictive modeling in advance of the incident? That's where we're trying to get to. And and I think that the next step of that is the operational application of those capabilities. So we've seen, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly for large facilities. Um, those of you that are dealing with things like college campuses or large, or large commercial campuses, we're seeing them leverage 3D modeling or digital twins with, with capabilities like indoor routing. So we've seen a number of special events or large events, you know, Super Bowl, World Series, Cobb County, um, and, and others that are using those digital twins to provide 3D routing to the, to the firefighter EMS provider in that facility. So I'm on the first floor of a stadium and, you know, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and I get an EMS call on the third level, literally pick up my phone or tablet. And it tells me, you know, go this way to this stairwell. And I can see in a 3d setting where to go to get to that patient. And that's the next step in that evolution or leveraging of that digital twin without a doubt. It's a long way from a pre-plan, huh? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's a good way to look at it is it's a pre-plan of the entire earth, like seven or eight times over and everything in it. Um, many companies, I mean, if you're in a large city, you're going to see a car driving around at some point with LIDAR and cameras on top. And it's literally doing that digital twin mapping for Google or Apple or one of Microsoft, one of the larger companies. The question is, how do firefighters get access of these digital twins? Buildings in our jurisdiction, they're not... They're, Contractors aren't submitting blueprints anymore. They're submitting digital image, imaging, and they're submitting digital image that you can quickly view to see if it's blocking somebody's view of the sunset or the mountain. Um, they're, they're submitting these drawings that have the information that firefighters need, like where is the FDCs located? Where, where, what are, the, what, what are the, the hydrant pressures of the hydrants that are uh, nearby this structure? Where are the exits? Uh, where are the elevator banks? All this stuff is available to most cities and municipalities. It's just not being passed on to the fire departments. And even if it was, we most of us wouldn't even know what to do with it. 
And so over the next five to six years, I think that you're going to really see that aggregation of that information into our common operating pictures so that as we're responding to these incidents, we understand what these digital twins are. Um, even before we arrive, if we know that there's a fire on the, on the third floor in uh, room AB7, you know, you'll be able to look at the thermodynamics of that room and understand the ventilation system. You'll be able to tell from the smoke detectors if the fire's uh, increasing in size or is the fire protection system doing its job. You'll be able to tell whether people are evacuating the building or if they're on the floor motionless. All those things now exist. They're just in silos that we don't have the information on. So you'll see expansion of that across the United States and into the tool into the tool bag of the firefighters. And you're seeing that evolution, you know, in training programs, particularly. We, we recently had a, a great day at the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg with uh, Richard Sexton and his group on the on the on the training side. And they're developing digital twins of of uh, Central City and Liberty County. If anybody's been to the fire academy out there, you know what I'm speaking of, you know, and, and to be able to look at a, a 3D visualization of, of that incident ground really makes a difference on how you make decisions, right? It, it makes a difference like like Chief Muncie was referencing, you know, it gives you a, a, an additional perspective maybe that we didn't have previously with those kind of, with that kind of technology. It's, it's, you mentioned training and it's making my instructor, I'm starting to have a little twitch in my eye over here as an instructor going, how in the heck, how do we look at this uh, exponential advancement in technology and information and I'm thinking of like the officer one class, you know, we, how do we how do we as a fire service start to even build the education that supports this level of information and technology? Well, I think, my, my training chief alarms are going off going, yeah. how do we fix this thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there, there's a, there's a couple of, of issues we have to deal with there. One, we have to start embedding at least a basic technology uh, capability or, or curriculum. And, and like you're saying, officer one, firefighter one, whatever it is. And uh, based that not just on the on the availability of the technology or the capabilities of the technology, uh, based that on the on the needs of the firefighters we're hiring. I mean, how many company officers right now are riding around with an officer? I mean, with a firefighter in jump seat that's got a smart device out that's feeding them information, whether it's about routing or or whatever it might be, on the way to a call. Right? There's an expectation by the individuals we're hiring into the fire service that we provide these kind of capabilities because in other aspects of their life they have access to it, you know, at their fingertips every day, all day. And so we have to be able to provide these capabilities because that's the way they learn. That's the way they engage in day-to-day -day life and will help them do their job better without a doubt. So I'm with you, Ed, on that. Have you, have you all seen anything with higher ed? Like I know like we have, uh, there are some fire science degrees and uh, different programs that are available. Columbia Southern, I know, has some fire science degrees for bachelor's degrees and maybe even a master's degree. Are the has the technology caught up in those curriculums? Do you have any any feel for that? Because I, I don't know. I've been a I while mean, since I went to school. Yeah, there's there's I think limited in, integration between public safety curriculum and and you know say a, a technology or IT type uh, curriculum in most in most institutions of higher learning. Um, but we're seeing again that's another trend. I mean, just I was just mentioning you know the the National Fire Academy and they're starting to embed some of that some of that um, educational program into things like EFO, Executive Fire Officer Program. And you see it also on the EMI side, the Emergency Management Institute, where where Dr. Stern up there is, is trying to add, a, you know, appropriate technology instruction to even basic courses. Because the fact is, you know, an entry-level job in just about any public safety agency, you have to deal with technology. So we have mm -hmm. to start providing that kind of education up front. Yeah, I think there's... One thing that's important, I think, for the fire service is that we get interns from management information analysts from local colleges and universities and bring them into our operations. Um, they learn an incredible amount about GIS and about databases and about extracting the information. But what they don't understand is the fire service itself. So by bringing the interns in, you're exposing them to the fire service. Recently, we just hired a, a new management analyst and I walked into her office and she had a copy of IFSTA on her desk and she was like on chapter seven and I looked down and I said what are you doing she said I'm trying to understand the fire service it kind of cracked me up so I think that there needs to be some higher learning engagement with the fire service I'm sure that there's specific tracks that are out there now for public safety but public safety tends to be law enforcement 
And I think, too, that the fire service is trying to find our way with this data and information. What data and information we truly need to interpret? What does that look like? I think SEPSI's done a great job with some of the work that they've been doing recently. Uh, and then, as, as Mike mentioned, recently, every National Fire Academy course I've been in has spoken heavily on the use of data. Uh, and how do you how do you go about getting this this information out? Even if you're not trained, uh, where do you go? What are the resources that are available to you? So I think you're going to see emergence in that. It's important. It's important to our firefighters. It's important to our citizens and life safety as a whole is to understand and tell our story better. And I'll, I'll add to what what Chief Muncie's um, referring to, and you know, not not just the firefighters, but what about our support staff? What about our IT personnel? You know, what about our analysts? When was the last time your IT director had a did a ride along? You know that those kind of those kind of exposures to what the fire service is really like makes a difference in how they approach their work to support you, and they really start to understand you know what 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 the job is about essentially. So engage those personnel. I talked about you know buy coffee and donuts and sit down, invite them to the firehouse, let them ride in the back seat for three hours. You know run two EMS calls, and that you know that'll change their perspective on what we're dealing with as a national fire service. I've actually seen the, I know the PhDs and scientists I work with where I, on my day job, we, man, you want to see those guys get excited. Show them, let's talk fire. Yeah. You know, yeah. that they get all interested in what the actual tactical operations are. So it's a, it's a lively conversation I've found in my experience. It's my only awesome. problem is we, we had a recent, um, a recent hire of what we call solution engineer, which is a very smart individual that really helps yeah. our public safety agencies. So we did the normal, hey, go do a ride along. And, and Chief Muncie was one of your neighbors. And about three hours into it, he's texting me going, I made a, made a wrong career choice. So I had to call the fire chief and say, you're not hiring that guy. He's mine. Leave him alone. Because after three hours on a fire truck, of course, he wanted to apply to the fire department. So uh, it's the greatest job imaginable for sure. Absolutely. The other big science that's out there, and I think that to the universities when they are teaching data, analysts in the fire service are looking at wildfire and trying yeah. to understand the wildfire threat or flooding or, or the other hurricanes. So I think those big emergencies are very interesting universities, but truly what's important to us is that we tell our story. We tell our story accurately. And so I think Mike gave a lot of good suggestions about how do you integrate those people in. Hey Mike, can I get the name of that guy that did the write up? <laughs> Negative. <laughs> what do y'all, I do have a, uh, what do y'all think about, um, I feel like fire departments lack the funding to get the things they need to understand their data and get information. But because they don't have the platforms to get the information, they don't have the ability to get the funding. It's like <laughs> this paradox, right? Like you just can't get out of your own way because you, you can't get the information you need because you can't afford it. And you, then you, you just can't, just can't ever catch up. So do you, th uh, what are there, any ideas on how to fund things like this? I know I've seen a few state grants that, um, like I know in my home state in Virginia, there's, there's a little bit of a way to try to, to free up some funds for analytics and things like that. But have you seen anything across the country? Are there any, like, um, I've, I've, I've been kind of looking at, uh, uh, what's the term, uh, resiliency grants or, you know, things there's, there's federal money out there. I just don't know how we line up on it as a fire service. You I mean, there's yeah, there's certainly a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, the fire act program, uh, I think that on the prevention side, the fire prevention and community risk reduction funding, there's a lot of room in there for, for data analysis and, and, and uh, leveraging technology and actually accessing or buying technology. Um, look at things like the infrastructure act and particularly, you know, on the wildland side, there, there are literally billions of dollars available for things like fire modeling and, and uh, mitigation efforts around the wildland and particularly WUI, wildland urban interface. Uh, and then, you know, think about non-traditional. I mean, look at public health grants because that could apply to a lot of our, you know, EMS issues when we talk about, you know, whether it's a chronic EMS problem or, or just talking about appropriate resources for our emergency medical provision. So there, you know, there, there are some available there to literally buy that technology to address those issues. Okay, perfect. I'm gonna step back into how do a smaller department or even a firefighter in an agency, they want to get into this. They want to start understanding data, be able to tell their story better. A couple of small techniques. I mentioned internships from local universities. They, If you invite them in, usually it's free. Sometimes universities will even pay them a wage to come work for you. And then just give them your data sets and they will go wild. 
if you can kind of tell them, is that, you know, I, I want something like this, they'll kind of start painting that picture for you. Even if you don't know, they've been through the classes and they have the resources through the university that people would call. I mentioned taking classes, whether it's online or taking an in-person ESRI class. I think, honestly, it's a good investment for any firefighter's time so that they can understand the basic applications and then start thinking about what you can do for it. I'll give you a personal story. I took a class on uh, Survey 123 and Collector. That's what it was called back then from Esri. And then probably two months later, I had our policymakers tell me, Chief, you've got to stop the firework problem. Um, and it was funny because we probably have about 400 fires caused by fireworks within that 10-day period of July 4th. We live in a very dry area. And so we just simply, having been exposed to what these these applications can do, I just went to our GIS team and I said, look, I'm looking for an application that will allow the residents to self-report where the fireworks are occurring. The idea was um, we don't exactly want everybody calling 911 when there's a firework in the sky because then our fire engine is just chasing fireworks and they don't actually catch anybody. But let's have the neighbors report where these locations are and let's send our fire investigators out to investigate. And then once we did that, the thought was, well, if you really want to stop the fireworks from happening, what if uh, we flew a drone, like a very high altitude drone, an overwatch drone, and we started collecting the geospatial information. We know where the fireworks are originating. Let's collect the property information and then let's send the property owner a letter. Or in a neighboring jurisdiction that I gave this idea to, they started issuing administrative citations. And that's an example where I took a small class and then all of a sudden, uh, today I'm sitting in a in our Confire Dispatch GPA meeting and everybody's talking about this firework app and how it's lowered the amount of 911 calls received to the dispatch center. Because the public, through great PR, by the way, uh, realized that this app exists and they were able to put the information in the app anonymously. And then there would be a fire investigator that would be coming into their neighborhood. So, we, you know, we created heat maps and... Uh, was able to tell where the addresses are, but we made a difference. So a lot of small agencies feel like they don't have the budgets. And if they're going to write a grant, say an AFG grant, they need to write for turnouts. They need to try to get a fire engine. They need to try to get more hose. They need to get more stuff. They may not want to use technology, but technology that they do deploy today, I would look at it and say, what do we need to continue to support? An example is, is that every state fire station I've been into typically has three or four computers in it, maybe even more, sometimes more computers than people. And all these computers are networked together and they're expensive to maintain. The question is why? Most firefighters want to use this. They want to use a handheld device to do all their reporting. So are we still investing in technology that we no longer need? And can we stop investing in those technology to free up some funds? Go to community groups, council of governments, looking at um, private partners and asking to do trial studies have all worked for us in order to bring some funding in. We've been able to get great information from ourselves without, you know, putting a lot of dollars out from our agency um, to, to invest in technology. Amazing. Awesome. We're just about out of time, uh, Chiefs. I just want to, uh, A, thank you for coming on the inaugural episode here of Fire Service Data Tech Talk. It's really, I think it's going to be an exciting next few years as we pr proceed forward. Uh, Chief Muncie, anything that uh, anybody wants to reach you, anything you want to share, like a, I don't know if you got your uh, social media stuff, handles or anything you want, emails, phone I'm not numbers. not a huge social media guy, but I am on LinkedIn. You can look at go. see Dan Muncie, M-U-N-S-E-Y, San Bernardino County Fire. My email address is D-M-U-N-S-E-Y at sbcfire.org. Always available to answer questions, especially if um, or connect you with somebody in the industry. If you need it, please reach out. And if I can't do it, I'll get a member of our tech council to, to work with you. We should probably plug the TSI conference, right? Absolutely. Uh, in December? There, there is going to be. It's a it's Technology Summit International. This yeah. is our second one through the iChiefs. The last one was very successful. Some of the finest technology leaders in the nation, fire, finest fire service leaders attended. The next one will be in December. I think the dates haven't quite been announced yet, but they're coming out soon. So kind of look for that on social media. Right. Go to the IFC website, uh, Google IFC Tech Council, informational pop-up. If you've listened to the show this long, you definitely want to attend. I can certainly guarantee that. 
Yeah, it's it's actually a lot better than this conversation. There's uh, some <laughs> yeah, right. technology there that'll just blow your mind. Yeah. Awesome show. I was there last year. Hey, Chief Cox, anything you want to pass along? Any way to reach you? Yeah, please. Um, most probably that are listening have access to a lot of the technology or some of the technology we're discussing. So please reach out if you have any questions. Mike underscore Cox at Esri.com, ESRI.com. Um, and to build on that TSI notification as far as a call to action, um, pre- one day preceding TSI, we're going to have a fire data analysis day. And that's kind of a pre-conference to TSI. And we're also doing a similar day at Fire Rescue International in August in Kansas City. So if you're coming to either one of those events, please plan to come a day early and spend eight hours talking about essentially what we were talking about today and some of the solutions you can provide to leverage your data appropriately. But Ed, thanks again for having me. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Honored to have both of you on the show. I really do appreciate it. And if you want to reach uh, out to me uh, or the show in any way, you can always uh, I've created a Facebook page. Like for the, just for the show, Fire Service Data and Tech Talk on Facebook. And the Twitter handle for this particular show is at Data Tech Talk, at Data Tech Talk on Twitter. So you can certainly shoot us information through Fire Engineering, uh, through the YouTube channel on Fire Engineering or the Facebook page on Fire Engineering. And the producers of the show will certainly get that information to me as well. And if you have ideas or, or topics you want us to cover in the future, we're certainly excited to hear about those. So. Um, appreciate everybody tuning in and listening to this show, Fire Service Data and Tech Talk. Everybody be safe and we'll see you next month. Take care. Fire Service Data and Tech Talk.